Well, if you were paying attention to this last hymn we sang, you just sang the sermon. You just sang this passage of Scripture. Um, what a powerful hymn that is. What a powerful Savior we have. Let's pray. Our God, most gracious, most loving, you who have displayed, placarded your son publicly for the shame and the sins of your people. Father, we thank you that you have provided for us a great and glorious salvation in Christ. Father, would you give us ears to hear now and hearts that would receive and obey with joy your word. Help us, Father, to see the altogether loveliness of Christ. May his name be magnified among us here today, Father, for your glory. We pray in his holy name. Amen. You know, Mark Ross, in his introduction to this passage, writes... <clears throat> Some preachers and movie makers have believed that people will be helped in understanding the work of Christ on the cross if they are given a more graphic presentation of the crucifixion than what can be found in the gospel narratives. In comparison with such presentations, the gospel narratives seem almost sanitized. The barest descriptions are given to us of the physical torments inflicted on Jesus. There is good reason for this moderation. Detailed emphasis upon the physical sufferings of Christ will not take us deeper into an understanding of what happened at the cross or what he accomplished there. End quote. I'm sure you've all seen movie depictions of Christ's crucifixion and the gospel accounts. Uh, the famous one that came out in the 90s, The Passion. Was that the night? No, early 2000s, excuse me. Yes, I was converted by then, so I would have seen it. But the emphasis is placed on the torture. I'm sure, I'm sure you heard sermons, how, how preachers go into great detail to, to explain the horrors of Roman crucifixion. You've, you've all heard that, right? I don't mean to make light, and I'm not making light of Christ's physical sufferings. But if that's all we see, we miss the whole point of the cross. We miss it all. And it's no wonder because do the gospel accounts give us those descriptions? They, they just tell us he's, he's crucified and he's made fun of and he's mocked and we do know that he's beaten and scourged. So we do know some of the horrors. Now we can go back into antiquity, we can go back into historical documents, and we can find all these other uh, things that describe his physical tortures. But it's not my intention this morning to, to rehearse for you those physical events of this passage in any great detail. We've read over them. Uh, we, we'll talk briefly of them. But I, rather, I, I would like to try to present a richer look into the theological truths of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. And by way of context, the long night is finally over. Remember this night started probably Thursday morning early. If we're going with the Friday um, death of Christ, which there are some troubles with that too. And there's the whole Passover feast. And then what's the day after the Passover is the, the high Sabbath, right? So we could have maybe two Sabbaths included in this. We're not going to go there and argue about all those. But it's been a long day. It's been a long night. Christ didn't sleep. He, he spent his time with his disciples. He, he agonized probably for hours in the garden um, praying to his father. And then he was arrested and had the illegal night trials before the Sanhedrin. And it's now finally morning, but there is no rest for our Lord. The day is just beginning. 
at the first part of chapter 27, we read where the the Sanhedrin, the, the chief priests and the elders, they hustle Jesus over to stand trial before Pilate because they've already pronounced him guilty of death, worthy of death. And they want him to die the worst death they can possibly imagine. And for the first century Jew, there was no worse death than the Roman crucifixion. Pilate is the only one as a representative of Caesar who has the authority to pronounce the death sentence under Roman law. What hatred, what vile hatred must be in their hearts to seek to put Jesus to death in this vile manner. Jesus had done nothing but good. He had healed the sick. He had cast out demons. He had fed multitudes of people with with next to nothing. He had raised the dead. And yes, he had scolded (laughs) these religious leaders on many occasions. He had called them hypocrites. He had called them whitewashed tombs. See, they were jealous because the crowds were going after Jesus. And, and you know, the whole thing about being in a position of prominence was having the people come after you, right? I want you to see me. I want you to hear me pray. I want you to, to praise me for my vast knowledge of the scriptures. And that was the Pharisee, right? That was the scribes. That was the Sadducees. They wanted all the people's attention. And Jesus was taking that away from them. But more importantly... He had claimed to be the Messiah. He had taught all throughout his ministry. Most of his teachings with the Pharisees were concerned was veiled in parables, kingdom parables, so that they wouldn't really understand. But we read in certain passages where they even heard the parables and they understood that he was speaking of them. The parable of the vineyard, right? So they were incensed. They were just incensed with this. We need to destroy this man. And so now they're carrying him to Pilate. So they led him bound to Pilate. Now, interestingly, Matthew, he he puts in a little insert now. He he, he starts the chapter out saying, and they bound him and they're taking him to Pilate. And then he puts a little insert. Remember how chapter 26 ended with the denial of Peter? And him leaving, going out and weeping bitterly. So now he's going to throw in another man who has sorrow, but with a different outcome. He inserts, he inserts the count of Judas, who all of a sudden when he sees that Jesus is condemned to being taken to Pilate, he, he kind of, well, he doesn't have a change of heart. He gets a guilty conscience, Yeah. He realizes he's made a mistake, yeah. And he tries to rectify that mistake to ease his own conscience. And so he goes to the, the, the people in charge and he says, Look, I was wrong. I, this is an innocent man. And they said, What's that to us? We've already condemned him. He's not innocent, he's blasphemer. And so he tries to give the money back. He throws it in the in, in throws it to the, the chief priests. This thirty pieces of silver. And, and even all of this, in this incident of, of Judas that, that Matthew puts in there, it's not necessarily just about Judas, but more importantly, it's about the scriptures being fulfilled. Almost everything that takes place in the account, the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, the leading up to the crucifixion and through the crucifixion and resurrection, are scriptures being fulfilled. And Matthew even says, this is done by the word of the prophet. That would be fulfilled. It must be so. I want, I want you to see one thing about Judas, and, and then we'll move on. Judas, even though he was remorseful, he did not have a godly sorrow, which leads to repentance unto life. 
Because that's what, that's what Peter had. Peter had a godly sorrow. He was truly broken in heart because of his denial of Christ. Judas is feeling sorry for himself because he has a guilty conscience. Peter is going to be restored by Christ. Judas is going to commit suicide. Judas is called a devil. Jesus himself said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He's speaking of Judas. And he's prayed to his father. I was with them. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And I just want to point this out, because there are some people that argue that Judas, at the end of the day, was saved because he was sorry. Being sorry doesn't get it. Being sorry doesn't save anybody. Repentance and faith is where salvation meets the sinner. Not being sorry. Now, we, we ought to be sorry for our sins, yes. But that sorrow needs to lead us to repentance and faith. It led Judas to commit suicide. Well, it's my hope and prayer that we, and that's that's for the context of where we're going here. That now we've started out the the chapter with the, Jesus is being led to Pilate. Matthew throws this insert in there, so I, I don't want to just pass over that without us carefully considering that. The point from that insert that I want you to take away, if you don't take away anything else, is that Scripture is being fulfilled, and all of these activities, even Judas and his wickedness, is fulfilling the Scriptures. It's my hope and prayer that we will be able to, with reverence, fear, and trembling, and yet also with joy in our hearts, leave here today saying with the Apostle Paul, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14 May we truly gain a better understanding of how we as sinful creatures have been made right with God. How is it possible that our sins were forgiven and that we were adopted into the family of the living triune God? May He receive all honor and glory and praise and dominion and worship from now and all time and eternity. Amen. We will consider this passage in two parts. A. Jesus' sentencing and crucifixion. And B. Where I hope to spend the majority of the time. Theological truths of Christ's crucifixion. For the sake of time, we will not be able to fully exhaust the theological truths of Christ's crucifixion. That would take weeks, if not months, or longer. And even the points that we look at today, which I hope are some of the more important ones, we will not fully exhaust those points either. But I want us to at least examine them briefly. Right away, Matthew records for us Pilate questioning Jesus. He asks Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. Now, where do we get that? Matthew doesn't tell us. Luke, however, tells us. He explains the question. Luke writes, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So now we have it. He's being charged by the religious leaders of the Jewish nation of usurping Caesar's authority. Saying we we he's telling us we ought not give tribute to Caesar. That that means taxes, that means obedience, that mean you know, what's due to the to, to Caesar. Now what did Jesus tell them when they tried to trap him with the taxes? Show me a coin. Whose inscription is on there? Oh, it's Caesar's. 
Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to the Lord what is the Lord's. And it says they, from that time, stopped trying to trap him because they couldn't catch him saying something wrong. Jesus never told them not to, not to obey Caesar. He never told them not to pay their taxes to Caesar. Matter of fact, he told them quite the opposite. In order to secure the death penalty, they had to make it look like Jesus was seeking to usurp Caesar's authority and thus cause an insurrection. Now that's going to be interesting because it just so happens that there are several men in custody, in Pilate's custody, that were guilty of just that, causing an insurrection. We will meet one of them in our passage today, Barabbas. I believe we'll meet the other two a little bit later on in our passage when they're crucified alongside our Savior. Notice Jesus answered the Pilate. Now, where have we heard this answer before? Jesus said, you have said so. Where have we heard that before? Isn't that just how he answered the chief priest? It is. But notice what's missing here. Jesus doesn't go on to tell Pilate the same thing that he told the chief priests. Because it would be lost on Pilate. Pilate's a heathen. He wouldn't understand Jesus' implication saying, And you will see the Son of Man uh, coming in the clouds of glory, seated at the right hand. No, Pilate wouldn't. Okay, whatever. But he did answer Pilate the same way, in that you have said so. In other words, you have correctly said so. It is true. Now, of course, if we looked at the other gospel accounts, we'd see a more in-depth answer and a more in-depth um, dialogue between Caesar and Jesus. But Matthew doesn't record that for us. These are the only words that Matthew records for us that Jesus says to Pilate. Pilate finds no fault in Jesus. He, he understands where these Jews are coming from. He, he realizes this because of jealousy that they want him destroyed. He's even warned by his wife. I mean, the, the, the words of his pagan wife are so interesting, are they not? Have nothing to do with this vile man. Is that what she says? Have nothing to do with this righteous man. What truer words. <laughs> There's no truer words that she had probably ever spoken in her life. He was a righteous man. He was the only righteous man. So Pilate, even being warned by his wife, it kind of shows his, his character. He could have just called out his battalion of soldiers and said, you know what? I'm tired of hearing this noise. Remove this crowd. And he could have released Jesus, right? Well, no, he couldn't have. <laughs> Not if you believe that God is sovereign <laughs> and that this was God's will, right? That was a trick question, by the way. Pilate was just doing what God had foreordained that Pilate would do, not excusing Pilate. Pilate was being a wicked man, doing a wicked thing, but he was also in that, accomplishing God's will. So Pilate acquiesces. He caves in to the crowd. All right, you guys won't shut up. I'll tell you what. I'm going to wash my hands of this. So he ceremonially washes his hands and said, his blood is not on me. And interestingly, the people, the crowd, what did they say? His blood be on us and on our children. Now, dear ones, this is not, this is not the, the, the blood that we sing about, you know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is not the same blood. This is a blood guilt. Interestingly enough, and, and wrongly, Christians down through the ages since then have, have said that this is on the Jews permanently. They just said on us and our children. And I think that curse was fulfilled because it was primarily in the next generation of Jews that took the full brunt of Rome's wrath when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. So they got what they wished for. Them and their children. 
But I don't think that curse is a perpetual curse against the Jewish nation, against Jewish, the Jewish people. I think that's a wrong understanding if we think that. Unfortunately, there's been many atrocities done to the Jews, even by those claiming to be Christian down through our history um, because of this passage. So Pilate says, you know what? You do with him what you want. I'm done with this matter. Take him. So what happens next? The soldiers bring Jesus into the, into the barracks there, probably an inner court of the barracks. They call out the whole battalion. And then they put a purple robe on him. And they mock him. And they kneel before him and give a, a mock obeisance. Hail King of the Jews. And they smack him on the head with a reed, the same reed that they had put in his hand to act like a scepter. And of course, we, we read in the Gospel accounts, they put a crown of thorns on his head to make him look more kingly. We don't know how long this went on. But after they, I guess, got tired of it, or, or it was time for them to go to the crucifixion, they took the royal robe back off of him, put his own clothes back on him. And the text tells us then they led him out to be crucified. Now he had already been scourged. That was scourging was not meant as a form of punishment necessarily. It was a form of interrogation. So they would beat you, would scourge, they would scourge you until you finally confessed to whatever crime it was that you had been accused of. And then, of course, now you've, you've confessed, so now we'll take you out and, and punish you. We're told he's already been scourged, and the pilot releases him to be crucified, and he's let out. And, of course, then we know that they conscripted the um, Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross. Starting in verse 32, And they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of his skull, they offered him wine to drink, <coughs> mixed with gall, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which reads, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. <coughs> and so Jesus is crucified. He's taken out to the place of execution, nailed to the cross. We're not told that in Matthew's gospel, but we read in other gospel accounts that he was, in fact, nailed to the cross. Uh, you know, <coughs> what did he tell Thomas? Look, Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hand here. So he was nailed to this cross. And that was the physical aspect of Jesus' crucifixion. The agony, hanging on a cross, waiting to die. Well, actually, that's not a right statement either, right? Jesus wasn't waiting to die. He knew the moment he would die because he would give up his life at the right moment. As the Bible says, in the fullness of time. He was born of a virgin in the fullness of time. He would give his life as a ransom for many in the fullness of time. And so Christ hangs there. Now we see the Jews are not satisfied. He's already been nailed to the cross. He's going he's gonna to die. And yet they're, they're not satisfied. They follow. That crowd follows this procession out to the place of execution. I guess the, the chief priests want to see it through. It's not enough that Jesus is nailed to this cross now. But now they have to revile him. You who said you would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down from the cross. You of the Messiah, if you come down from the cross, we'll believe you. No, they wouldn't. I mean, they didn't believe him after you raised Lazarus from the dead. That would be a much more impossible feat than coming down from the cross. And by the way, Jesus didn't say he would destroy the temple. <laughs> he said, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. 
talking about his body, which was being fulfilled right now. They were destroying the temple. And three days later, he would raise it up. But it's not just the, the, the crowds that were crying crucify him. It's not just the crowds that were reviling him. Though It's, it's the religious leaders. It's the chief priests. You say you're the son of God? Let God save you. And they're making fun of him. You know, it's, it's, it's a very sad but scary picture. They are mocking the Lord of glory. They are mocking their creator. They are waiting for the very one that gave them life to die. And they will stand before that same crucified Lord for judgment. Only the next time they see him, they'll be the ones that are speechless. They'll be the ones that, that can't give a defense. Jesus could have defended himself. He chose not to. But they won't be able to defend themselves because they will be found guilty and they will know it. There are some sins that are worse than others, dear ones. All sin is vile. But there are some sins that are worse than others. Jesus said there's a sin that you don't come back from. And that's what? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. How are they blaspheming the Holy Spirit? The Spirit had revealed Christ as Messiah through many mighty works. And yet they called Him a devil. Even the robbers, even these two insurrectionists, these, these criminals that were crucified with him, they were there dying themselves. I'm sure that, you know, I don't think that the, the movies and everything portray them like that because, you know, even the picture books portrays Jesus as nailed, but these guys just tied, right? It doesn't show that they've been beaten. I'm sure they were scourged as well. Even them waiting to die. Doesn't that show you the, 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 the total depraved nature of fallen man? I am dying and yet I'm going to mock this person who's dying next to me. I'm listening to these guys down here and I'm going to revile him. The charge against him was, was being an insurrectionist, right? Claiming to be a king. Uh, the, the very crime that those two individuals were probably guilty of. They were probably members of this insurrection that Barabbas had been part of. And yet they're reviling this man who, who as far as they knew, had the same cause as them. And yet, of course, Luke tells us that one of them had a change of heart. And one of them actually went to be with the Lord that very same day. And so that's the physical aspects of the crucifixion. Jesus is hanging there. Physically done. Wore out. Loss of blood. Lack of sleep. No food. He's there in a very bad way. And I don't ever want to think that, that I would make light of that. But you know, there are people that have made statements. There's many Christians down through history that have been tortured in unimaginable fashions and have went to their death silently. So Jesus tortures, if it was just physical, what would it accomplish? I mean, anybody who died a painful death, right? Would, would at least atone for their own sins, would they not? But that's not, that's not the case. So that brings us to some of the theological things that I would like to pull from this passage. 
And verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Darkness over all the land. What does that usually portray in Scripture when we see the word darkness? One of the things is sin. Judgment. Wrath. Even in one instance, it's, it's a protection of... For God's people. You remember Mount Sinai? God came down and there was a cloud of thick darkness that covered the mountain. What was that for? That was to shield the people from seeing the glory of God. And being consumed by it. But by and large, darkness doesn't have a positive connotation, but a negative one. The Bible says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Proverbs 14.9 And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 3.19 If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 1.6 Darkness symbolizes sin and a sinful living. What does the Bible tell us about Christ on the cross? That He became sin for us. I think that darkness was symbolic of that very event taking place. Christ becoming sin for us. Now we're not going to sit here and, and, and argue about this darkness. A lot of people get focused in on the darkness itself. Was it an eclipse? Was it a big dust storm? The Bible says, and a great darkness came upon all the land. I think it was a supernatural darkness. No, it wasn't creation rebelling because the Creator was being killed. That sounds nice, but I don't think that's the case. This was a supernatural event that God made to happen to symbolize what was taking place on that cross. He became sin for us. Darkness. But darkness is also, in Scripture, a symbol of God's wrath and judgment. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness, Proverbs 20.20. 20. That's a punishment, right? Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Amos 5.20 that's called, talking about the judgment day, the last day when the Lord returns. It's called a day of darkness, a day of judgment. Not darkness for the believer, mind you, but for those who will be under the wrath of God, for those who are not found in Christ Jesus. Matthew 25, 30 we read, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a picture of what? Hell, judgment, wrath. And in Revelation 16.10, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. Judgment. Judgment. Not only was this darkness at Calvary, I think, a picture, a, a symbolic picture of what was taking place on, in the person and work of Christ, that He became sin for us, but it was also a picture of what God was doing. God was judging our sin and pouring out His wrath on His only begotten Son. The Bible tells us it pleased the Lord, it pleased Yahweh to crush Him. This wasn't just a darkness to, to hide the shame of the cross. 
but to help people see. It was a miraculous sign, I believe, to help people see and maybe start to understand what was taking place. That what they were doing, yes, was a vile and wicked act. But that was nothing compared to the sins that were poured out on Jesus that he was being punished for. Next we have the only words that Matthew records Jesus crying forth from the cross. You know, there's, what, seven cries from the cross? And we've, Pastor Thomas, what, a year or so ago, preached through those? Matthew only records one of them. He records that Jesus said other things, but he doesn't say what he said. But here he, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is this cry significant? Well, one, it is also a fulfillment of Scripture, namely what? Psalm 22. But why is this cry significant? We, now, we've kind of touched on this in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was uh, anguished severely in soul. Jesus was being made sin. And being made sin, he became a curse for us. In other words, he was separated from his father's favorable presence. Now people say hell is the absence of God. That's wrong. God is omnipresent. God is present in hell just as much as he is in present is present in heaven or on earth or anywhere else. Hell is God's hell. You know, this, this, this notion that Satan owns hell is ridiculous. Hell was made for Satan so that Satan and his minions could be punished. Satan doesn't run hell. He, he doesn't mete out the punishment to those that go to hell. He's there for punishment. That's God's hell. And, and I would submit to you that while Jesus was on the cross... He spiritually descended to hell. Because that's what the Bible teaches. God poured out his wrath. What is God's wrath? God's wrath is hell. And so Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Interestingly, what does Jesus call God throughout all the descriptions that he calls God in the gospel accounts? What does he call God? Father. This is the only instance that I'm aware of where he doesn't call him Father, he calls him God. And yet, he still calls him God. He's not blaspheming. Even in his lowest point, he will not blaspheme God, but acknowledges who God is. And he acknowledges that he's under the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so he is thus separated in his humanity from the favorable presence of God. He is suffering hell at this very instance, in this very moment. Interestingly, that's the only words of Christ from the cross that Matthew records. And there's a, a lot of theological significance in those words. Jesus is suffering on our account. Because of our sin. He is separated from the favorable presence of God because of what we do and have done and will do. I've said it before, but at this moment in time, Christ has become the most vile creature in all of creation. We are vile. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not vile because of your sins. I'm vile for my own sins. But Christ is vile at this point because he has taken upon himself the sins of all of God's people for all time. From creation till the second coming. How many sins is that? I can't even tell you mine. I will lose track of the number. And so Christ feels the full brunt of God's wrath. And he has to endure it. 
until it's completed. Until the payment has been made. Until the anger of God has been placated. Well, we have a necessity, the necessity of divine punishment. Now, that can be argued two ways. Was divine punishment necessary? Well, yes. Was the atonement necessary? Well, in a way, it wasn't. God wasn't obligated to save anybody. And yet God obligated himself in the covenant of redemption to save a people for himself. And so because of the covenant of redemption, the atonement was absolutely necessary. Divine punishment. Louis Burkhoff writes, The majesty and absolute immutability of the divine law as inherent in the very nature of God made it necessary for him to demand satisfaction of the sinner. The transgression of the law inevitably carries with it a penalty. It is inviolable exactly because it is grounded in the very nature of God. In other words, the law of God is is grounded in his very nature. And so when we violate God's law, we attack, we assault God. We offend God. Therefore, we need punishment. Because man sinned, man has to be punished. That's throughout all of Scripture. Burkhoff continues, When he, God, entered into the covenant of works with man, he decreed that death would be the penalty of disobedience. That principle finds expression in many other words of Scripture. The veracity of God demanded that the penalty should be executed. And now listen to this. And if sinners were to be saved, should be executed in the life of a substitute. Why is that? Why must there be a substitute? Because you and I, we are not sinless. If we were to die and go to hell, we would spend eternity paying for our own sins and never being able to accomplish it. Why? There was a specific reason why the Old Testament sacrifices were required to be unblemished. <clears throat> Not that God really you know, doesn't like deformed animals, but those sacrifices pointed forward to Christ the spotless Lamb of God. It must be an unblemished sacrifice, unblemished spiritually, that could pay for our sins. And so if we're to be saved, it must be the spotless Lamb of God, the perfectly spiritually unblemished substitute. That brings us to penal substitution. One Bible scholar writes of this term, the death of Christ was penal in that he bore a penalty when he died. His death was also a substitution in that he was a substitute for us when he died. This view of the atonement is sometimes called the theory of vicarious atonement. Maybe you've heard that term. A vicar is someone who stands in the place of another or who represents another. Christ's death Death was therefore vicarious because he stood in our place and represented us. As our representative, he took the penalty we deserve. End quote. So there was a substitutionary atonement that took place, a, a vicarious atonement. The Bible says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says in his gospel declaration in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. There was penal substitution. He was the propitiation for our sins. 
Now, you know, a lot of Bible scholars argue about the word atonement. Atonement is not really an action, but rather it's a result of an action. Okay? And so, like propitiation, it's an action that leads to a result. What is propitiation? Propitiation, that by which God is rendered propitious, i.e., by which it becomes consistent with his character and government to pardon and bless the sinner. The propitiation does not procure his love or make him loving. It only renders it consistent for him to exercise his love towards sinners. What does that mean? That means if God were to just arbitrarily forgive sinners, he would be unjust. He would be unrighteous. The Bible tells us that those who pardon sinners are, are an abomination. They're, they're unrighteous. And so God can't just forgive sin. Sin must be punished. Something needs to happen to placate the wrath of God, to, to appease Him, to fulfill the requirements. Now, there are requirements under the law. The wages of sin is death. And if those requirements are not met, then no one can be saved. By his substitutionary death, Christ placated or appeased God's wrath that he had against his sinful elect. God can now bestow his loving forgiveness on his elect. This is so that God remains righteous while forgiving the unrighteous. What does the Bible mean when it says that God overlooked sin in the past? But now, something has taken place. What does that mean? Did God just not care about sin in the Old Testament? No. God was looking at the cross. And so, the Old Testament saints are saved just like the New Testament saints. They're saved through the cross. Through what Christ accomplished on the cross. God didn't cast them into hell when they died because if they were believers, the cross covered them. The blood of Christ on that cross covered them. His sacrifice covered them. In God's economy, this happened before the foundation of the world, right? The lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world There was definitely a propitiation that took place. God's wrath was placated on behalf of his people. Trust me, there's still plenty of wrath that will be poured on those unrighteous, unrepentant sinners on that day of wrath. The Bible says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Through the cross, we are justified. That's a legal term. Forensic legal term. We are not just we are not righteous, but we are declared that. We are acquitted because the penalty has been paid. And so when we say we are justified, that means we are made just before God. When God looks at your account, He sees perfect righteousness. And no, dear one, it's not your righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from without it's a righteousness that comes from Christ. When God looks in your account, He sees Christ's perfect obedience. When He looks in your account, He sees Christ paying the penalty for sin. So your sins are paid for. Therefore, a just God cannot declare you guilty. You are not guilty by virtue of Christ's atoning work. Our confession of faith in chapter 11, paragraph 1 states, Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. 
We are justified through faith in the finished work of Christ Jesus. We are no longer at war with God. And then we get to the results. We're not at war with God anymore, dear ones. The Bible says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 We are no longer under His condemnation. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now! There is now no condemnation. It's gone. That three hours of darkness, that's where it went. Christ paid the penalty He took the condemnation. He suffered the wrath of God. He was under the damnatory sentence of Almighty God. And now for the believer, there is no condemnation. And then we get to, well, Matthew records it, and Jesus called out loudly and gave up His Spirit. In other words, there's there's a victory cry given. and, And the different Gospels give it different ways. He says, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. There we go. You see that transition? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The price has been paid. The battle has been fought. The victory has been won. Jesus is now once again spiritually at peace with His Father. We have fellowship restored. The fellowship of Christ restored with His Father. But even more important, our fellowship with God is restored through Christ Jesus. Notice Jesus is once again addressing God as Father. No more spiritual separation. No more wrath. No more punishment. He says it is finished. And by the way, the people that think that when Jesus died, then he went to hell and was punished, that's heresy. When Christ uttered those words, it is finished, it was. There's no more payment to be made on behalf of God's people. Only on the cross, bearing the sins of His people, did He address His Father as God. But His mission is accomplished, and so He is no longer under the wrath of God. His fellowship with His Father has been restored. And we see in that, we have reconciliation. Which is also, can be said, atonement. Another way atonement is used is reconciliation. Or expiation. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? Romans 5.10 And we have redemption accomplished. We have redemption accomplished. It's, It's not something that we still are waiting for. It's done. We're waiting for the culmination. We're waiting to see the final fruits of it. When Christ returns... And the dead in Christ will rise, and then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds, right? We're waiting for that glorious day. But redemption is accomplished. It was accomplished when God made the covenant of redemption in eternity past. And now, here at the cross, it is accomplished in time and space. That covenant is fulfilled. Now, I know that the, the... Payment portion is fulfilled, of course, but we're still waiting for the final culmination. The covenant will be once and for all completely fulfilled at the return of Christ when God's people will be with Him for all eternity. Redemption is accomplished. Well, I need to conclude here. In our passage today, we have seen what Jesus of Nazareth endured on behalf of His people. As, as horrible, as horrific as the, the physical suffering was, that was nothing. And I don't say that lightly, but that was nothing compared to the horrors that he suffered spiritually. 
on the cross. He was publicly mistreated, shamed and mocked. He was tried by wicked and evil men and sentenced to death. But not just any death. He was sentenced to Roman crucifixion, the worst form of death at that time. But that was not the worst of it. On the cross, Christ spiritually descended into the pit of hell. He suffered under the just and holy wrath of God. Becoming sin for us and taking our deserved punishment, he was separated from the favorable presence of his Father until all the requirements of the law were met. After he had perfectly accomplished his redemptive work, he gave up his spirit into the loving hands of his heavenly Father. Dear ones, how can we remain silent? How can we not sing the praises of this Savior? And tell about him to everyone we meet. What a savior we have. What a glorious salvation. What an awful price that was paid for our sins. Jesus died to pay the sin penalty for all those who would be united to him in faith. If you have not repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ then you still have to look forward to God's wrath. You are still a child of wrath. You are still dead in your sins and trespasses. And if you die in your rebellion, you will spend all eternity suffering God's wrath. There will, there will be no moment where you can sigh and say, into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit, because you will be in his wrathful hands for all eternity, never to escape. Stop your rebellion now. It's a losing fight. It will cost you not only your life, but your soul. Repent and believe in Jesus and you will find peace in Him. Peace with God through Christ. If you are plagued with some begetting, besetting sin, remember that Christ died for sinners. Run to Him and plead for grace. Plead for the strength to resist the devil. Rely on the faithfulness of God. Flee to Christ. He paid the penalty for those sins. Dear saints, we cannot even begin to comprehend what it is that Christ has endured for us. And praise God, we will never have to find out. But we can glory in what He has accomplished for us. Just think of it. We have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We have been redeemed we now have peace with God and have been adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. We can now, just as Jesus does, call God our Father. Think of that. And that is because of what Christ accomplished through His death on the cross. Paying the penalty for our sins. I'll close with these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? All of that which he endured. As it is written, for your sake we are all killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for being merciful and gracious to us. Thank you for pouring out your wrath on your Son who stood in our place. And we thank you that it did not destroy Him, but that through which we are now your sons and daughters. Thank you, Father. I pray now in Jesus' name that you would make this reality the reality in every heart here today within the sound of my voice, Father. 
Your word promises that Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. Father, send forth your gospel and do just that. Save the lost. And do this for your glory. Father, help us to live for Christ. Help us to honor you in, in, in how we live for him and magnify him. For you loved him. Help us to love him and obey. Thank you for the cross. May we glory in it always. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this time, if you would, please stand. And we'll sing together hymn number 274, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. <laughs> 